Parshas Achrimos, Moshe is commanded to instruct his brother Aaron in the Avodas Yom Kippurim, in the Mishkan, and then in the future, other Kohanim Gedolim, descendants of Aaron, will do this in the base of Mikdash. On Yom Kippur, the centerpiece of our worship on Yom Kippur was the Avoda, the special service done by the Kohen Gadol in the Mishkan, and then eventually in the base of Mikdash. And this is outlined in detail in Parak Tadzayin here in Parshas Achrimos. Among the many different things that the Kohen Gadol would do on Yom Kippur, perhaps the centerpiece of it all is the Seir HaMishnaleach, the fact that we bring two nearly identical goats to the Beis HaMikdash, to the Mishkan. A lottery takes place. One is chosen to be brought as a carbon chatas on the Mizbeach in the Beis HaMikdash or in the Mishkan. And the second one is led out into the wilderness, what is known as Azazel. Rashi explains that's a place that's very harsh, rocky, a very steep and rocky cliff. And this animal, the second goat, is brought out, Lazazel. The Torah tells us that the goat is carrying, as it were, the sins of the Jewish people. It's carrying on its back, as it were, the sins of the Jewish people. The Kohen Gadol does a vidui, a confession on behalf of the whole Jewish people. And the animal is pushed off the cliff, hopefully bringing with it atonement and forgiveness for the Jewish people. There are so many questions that can and should be asked about this incredibly mysterious ritual, but really all of those small questions add up to one large one. What is going on? How can we possibly understand this? It seems almost like a superstition that the Torah usually outlaws, and yet here we have something very mysterious going on. Now we should acknowledge that the Gemara itself Sechas Yuma, Daf Samach Zayinam and Beis, tells us in fact that this ritual is a chok. It's one of those types of mitzvahs that we'll never truly understand. We're not intended to understand. As human beings, we don't have the ability to completely understand. And yet, nevertheless, despite that statement of Chazal, a number of Rishonim have tried to give various interpretations and ways of understanding this uh, ritual. And even though we understand that we might never truly understand it, we will follow their lead and share a few of the different interpretations. So first, the Rambam in Mornavuchim, in the third section, not surprisingly, very much tries to demystify the ritual and give a very rationalistic explanation. He says this is in keeping with a theme that we have in other sin offerings, and that is that we send the animal away as symbolizing the fact that in order to get repentance and achieve atonement, we need to distance ourselves. We need to go away from our sins in our past, when it was sinful. Obviously, says the Rambam, you can't take the Pasuk literally. It doesn't mean that the sins of the nation are placed on the back of the goat. Don't be ridiculous, says the Rambam. Rather, this is all in a detailed and dramatic ritual intended to scare the nation and inspire them towards tshuva. As we see that goat walking out towards the wilderness, towards Azazel and its fate, we are instructed to hopefully learn the lesson, and so too, just like the animals being led out to the wilderness, we should walk out, so to speak, to the wilderness, walk away, distance ourselves from our past sins. The Abar Benel and the Akedas Yitzchak, here in Perak Zion, also follow the Rambam's lead in giving a more rationalistic explanation, but they offer two interpretations, one of which I will share now, which is different than the Rambam, but still keeping in the spirit of the Rambam. They explain that the key to all of religious life, and therefore to tshuva as well, is Bechir Chavshis, our belief that every person has free will, that we can choose freely our actions to do good or to do bad, 
It's up to us. That's an incredible power, an incredible blessing, but of course with that comes great responsibility. We are responsible for our actions because we can freely choose what to do. Therefore, the Abarbanel and Akkadis say the two paths that these that these goats respectively are led on symbolize the two paths that lie before each and every one of us. Based on our decisions and our choices and the life decisions that we make, we can either be like the first goat and go up on the ramp, upwards and higher to the to the mizbeach and get closer to Hashem as that animal is brought as a carbon. Or, God forbid, we can make bad choices and then we can be like the other second goat that's led out towards destruction and despair and Azazel. The choice is ours, the two paths are before us, and whichever one we choose, we can either be like the first animal going up closer to Hashem, or we can go out to the desert into destruction and desolation and Azazel. The choice is ours. In contrast with all of these interpretations, both of the Rambam, Abarbanel, and Akei Sitzchak, all of which share a certain rationalistic bent, the Eben Ezra, as understood by Ramban, has a deeply mystical interpretation of what's going on. In fact, the Eben Ezra in Prakhtet Zayin, Pasachet, says there's a super secret interpretation, so secret he can't really explain it, but he says that it's found after the word Azazel, and says the Eben Ezra, all I can give you is a small hint, you'll understand it after 33 years. <laughs> what is he talking about? <laughs> it gets more and more secretive and more and more confusing. So Ramban says quoting Ibn Ezra, he doesn't want to tell you. He's the keeper of secrets. But says the Ramban tongue-in-cheek, I'll be the tale-bearer who will reveal the secret. And the secret is, he says, not 33 years, but it's a hint to 33 psukim. 33 psukim, after the first mention of the word Azazel, you get the Perkid Zayin, Puzzik Zayin, in which the Torah tells us, Lo that the Jewish people evidently used to have a certain pagan idolatry in which they would worship and offer sacrifices to certain kind of demons or evil forces that are being referred to here in this Pasuk is Se'irim. The same word that is used in the context of the service on Yom Kippur, referring to the goats that we're talking about, that same word is being referred to here as this old and ancient Avodah of worshipping these demons. So the Ramban explains that people used to worship these demons, and now the Torah is telling us, of course, that that is prohibited. However, shockingly, on Yom Kippur, one day a year, we are commanded to send a goat out to the wilderness, because that's where these forces of evil forces of demons, that's where they are inhabiting, that's where they live, and they rule there, and their power from them comes the power of war and evil and destruction, and we send out an animal there as a way of acknowledging the power of these forces. The Ramban realizes how radical it sounds, and he explains, of course, we don't choose to worship, uh, it's rather that Hashem is making that choice. That's why there's lottery. It's not the Kohen choosing to send it, but rather the lottery choosing which animals to go there. Certainly very mystical and very shocking. I prefer the Ramban personally, but that is the Ramban's explanation. You shall surely rebuke your fellow Jew. But you shall not bear a sin because of him. This well-known Pasuk in Parshas Kedoshim, in Perak Yutes, Pasuk Yudzayin, is the basis of the mitzvah of rebuke. Hochech, tochirach, if you see another Jew sinning, you're supposed to tell them, point out their mistake, and show them the correct way. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, in his classic work, Emes Lyakov, has a beautiful, beautiful an insightful explanation and development of this pasuk and of this mitzvah, which is a fascinating combination of both parshanut and halachic analysis. 
Let's start with a few questions. From the last phrase in the Pasuk, Lo Sisa Alav Achet, you shall not bear a sin because of him, Rashi explains in the name of Chazal that this means that you're not allowed to embarrass a person. You're never allowed to embarrass a person, and you're not even allowed to embarrass a person while you are giving them rebuke. However, asks Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, why should that be the case in the situation of rebuke? Perhaps it is prohibited in general to embarrass a person, but if this is serving the higher purpose of correcting them, then maybe that should be a cost we're willing to live with. Even on a technical halachic level, we usually say that when there's a clash, asay dochalotasay, a positive command can overrule a negative command. So the positive command of giving rebuke should overrule the negative command of not embarrassing. But yet the halacha is not that way. Wonders of Yaakov, why not? Moreover, he asks, the Gemara in Erchen and Avtazayin and Beis asks the question, Ad heichan, how far do you have to go to rebuke a person? It would be nice if in theory you tell the person he's doing something wrong, and right away they say thank you and they correct their ways. But very often it will be the case that they'll maybe ignore you. So then, says the Gemara, you have to repeat it and repeat it, and maybe they'll even get upset at you, and you still have to repeat it. How far do you have to go, says the Gemara, a number of opinions, perhaps until he actually hits you, maybe until he just insults you, but it's quite extreme. But at that point at least, at that point at least, says the Gemara, you're no longer obligated. You've done what you can, you don't need to do any more. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky looks at this Gemara from the opposite perspective. Not, wow, this is so dramatic, you have to go so far. Why is there ever an exemption? Ask Rav Yaakov a rhetorical question. Would this ever exempt you in another mitzvah? Hypothetically, let's say you're putting on tefillin and someone starts yelling at you. Someone embarrasses you. Someone insults you. Does that exempt you from putting on tefillin? Obviously not. Even if they would hit you. Again, if you were uh, fearing for your life, of course, at least temporarily, you wouldn't put on the tefillin. But it wouldn't exempt you from at some point later in the day putting on tefillin. How come if a person insults you or even hits you, that exempts you? That wouldn't work in any other situation. So based on these and other questions, Rav Yaakov explains as follows. He says, these questions are coming from a faulty assumption. And that is that the nature of this mitzvah is, we think, our requirement to be God's policeman. It's our job to go around and make sure that everyone else is doing the right thing. You know, God can only be in so many places uh, at one time, so to speak. And if I'm in the right place at the right time and I see someone else doing something wrong, so with righteous indignation and by the power vested in me by Hashem, I have been deputized, I'm, so to speak, God's policeman, I'm going to make sure this person is doing the right thing. If that would be correct, if that's our assumption, then it's true. The questions we asked above are really good questions, and those halachos don't really make any sense. But because, in fact, that's not the halacha, as we've seen, that the halacha is that you do have to uh, do so in a way that doesn't embarrass the person, and that there are times when you're exempt and no longer have to rebuke them. Yaakov says we can derive from here a completely different conception of the mitzvah. It's not ben adam lamakom serving God's wishes as his policeman, so to speak. In fact, it's a mitzvah ben adam l'chavero. It's an interpersonal mitzvah. The idea of the mitzvah is not that we're doing it for God, but we're doing it for our fellow Jew. We are rebuking them, we are telling them what they were doing wrong, we are correcting them, we are instructing them, because we love them and we care about our fellow Jew. We don't want that person to be making mistakes, we don't want them to be going down a wrong path. On the contrary, because we love them, we want to show them the right way, so they can do the right thing and earn the reward. Yaakov Kamenetsky brings as support uh, for this remarkable insight, the fact that if you look at the surrounding psukim, also here in Parshas Kedoshim, there's a common theme. Many of them are also mitzvahs 
Ben Aram Lachavero, very famous ones. The mitzvah not to hate your fellow Jew, lo sisna, the mitzvah on the positive sense to love your fellow Jew, if you have recha kamocha, lo sikom velo sitor, not to take revenge or to bear a grudge against your fellow Jew. All of these are very beautiful and very important aspects of the interpersonal relationships the Jews are supposed to have with each other. Mitzvah Ben Aram Lachavero. Says Rav Yaakov, giving rebuke, fits into that pattern, it's part of that system as well. It's not about being God's policeman, but it's about being a genuine good friend, caring about our fellow Jew, and wanting the best for them. And the best for them, we truly believe, is to do the right thing, and to do the mitzvot. He points out that the Rambam, in Hilchos Deos, in Perek Vav, when he quotes this halacha, stresses that when you give the rebuke, it should only be in private, not to embarrass the person, but also you should speak Belashon Raka, in a soft language, and in a way that the person realizes that you're only doing it, Litovaso, not to show that you're better than them, not to show them up, not to be God's policeman, but rather you're doing it for his or her benefit, Litovaso, and to help that person do the right thing and earn Olam Haba. Senator Yaakov Kamenetsky, this idea that the person realizes that you're doing it for their benefit isn't a bonus, it's not a cherry on top, it's the essence of the mitzvah, that you grow closer together. You're doing it because you genuinely love and care about that fellow Jew. And that person who's hearing it, even if it's hard to hear, but they understand and truly believe that you're doing it because you are looking out for their best interest. They should view it just as if you are coming and returning a lost object or somehow saved their money. If you went over to a person and said, hey, you dropped something, no one would be insulted and say, how dare you say that? They'd be grateful, even if they were slightly embarrassed that they dropped it. They'd be so grateful that you returned their lost object, their wallet, or whatever the case is to them, and appreciate that you had given them this money back. So too, when you give rebuke, it has to be done in that way. And if they don't feel that it's being done for their benefit, and that you're doing it not because you care about them, then it's not a mitzvah. And this explains, he says, why if you reach that point of hitting or cursing you, you're exempt because there's no point anymore. There is no more mitzvah. In fact, it's having the opposite effect. A number of Midrashim at the beginning of Vayikra Rabbah on Parshas Kedoshim, which is found in the Vayikra Rabbah Parsha Chavdalid, and a number of those Midrashim, they focus on the opening Pasuk of this week's Parsha of Kedoshim to you. And I'd like to focus on three different teachings that are found in the Medrash, each of which is fascinating and provides insight into this Parsha and into the nature of sanctity and holiness into Kedusha. And what I find particularly fascinating is that the three Midrashim that we'll study each are focusing on a different nuance of the opening Pasuk in the Parsha. That Pasuk, as is well known, technically the second Pasuk in the Parsha, Ve'edab Hashem al-Moshe le'mor, what does Hashem tell Moshe to do? Daber el-Kol Adas b'nei Yisrael, you should speak to the entire congregation of the Jewish people, of Amarta Elihem, you should tell them, Kedoshim to you, they shall be holy, ki kadosh ani Hashem alokechem, because I, Hashem, your God, am holy. That is the famous Pasuk at the outset of the Parsha. So in the very first Medrash here in Parsha Chavdalid Simon Aleph, the Medrash takes, notes of, takes note of the continuation of the Pasuk, which seems to uh, be tola, which seems to make contingent the ability and the command of the Jewish people to be holy, kadoshim to you, on the fact that Hashem Himself is holy, ki kadosh ani Hashem alokechem. And the implicit question that the Medrash here seems to be bothered with is that it seems to be simply inconceivable. How could anything be comparable to God's holiness? How can we in any way compare, let alone command the Jews to strive for something based on Hashem's holiness? Hashem is completely sui generis, there's nothing, He's incomparable, He's 
unique beyond uh, what we can put into words. We can't even fathom God's full holiness, let alone try to compare ourselves even aspirationally to that. So what could the Pasuk mean? And in fact, the Medr Shira has a very creative reading of the Pasuk. Amr B'Shimon ben Yochai, Amos HaShmo Kadosh Baruch Hu Miskadel in fact, says the Medrash, that's actually not how you should read the Pasuk. What the Pasuk is really uh, telling us is that through the elevation of the Jewish people, through our per- being perceived as special in Kadosh, the elevation and status of the Jewish people, that Hashem's name is sanctified in this world. Where did the Medrash get it from? The proof text that is brought before the selection I read a moment ago is the Pasuk in Ishaya in Parakei. Vayigba Hashem Tzvaos Bamishpat. When is Hashem Vayigba? When is Hashem's name elevated? When is Hashem truly achieved the respect and acclaim that He deserves in this world? Bamishpat. When the world can perceive His Mishpat. And based on the continuation of that Pasuk, says the Medrash, as I previously mentioned, when Hashem punishes the wicked non-Jews who live immorally, who persecute the Jewish people, when Hashem's judgment is perceived in this world, then it's miskadel ba'olamo b'sha'asha osem midas adin When we can see God's judgment and the, right, and the righteous are elevated, i.e. the Jewish people, and the wicked uh, among the non-Jews who persecute and live immorally are punished, then yisgadal miskadel ba'olamo, Hashem's name is elevated in this world. So it's not actually making our aspiration of holiness contingent on Hashem's um, holiness, but on the contrary, almost in a reverse, saying, when is Hashem's holiness perceived? When the Jewish people are in a very good state in this world, i.e. when Hashem's judgment is perceived in this world, and the Jewish people who live righteously are treated appropriately, and those who are wicked are punished appropriately in this world. Unfortunately, Obviously, what the Medrash is taking into account is that much of the time, for whatever reason, which we cannot understand Hashem's mysterious ways, but much of the time uh, in this world, we don't see Hashem's judgment. We take it as a matter of faith that there is judgment that we can't always perceive, even in this world, and certainly we we believe that in the next world, uh, there will be a divine reckoning and an ultimate justice to be paid, punishment to be levied, reward to be given. But the Medrash is acknowledging that nevertheless, in that reality, Hashem's greatness is not always perceived in this world. But when is Hashem's name miskadel? When is Hashem's name great in this world? When His justice is perceived, and therefore when the Jewish people who are acting morally are elevated, and when people who acted immorally are punished. This is a fascinating, fascinating insight of the Medrash, which not only connects the destiny and the fate being intertwined to the Jewish people and Hashem, itself a topic uh, worthy of more contemplation, as well as an acknowledgement that when justice in this world is perceived, it is a kiddush Hashem, and when the opposite is the case, unfortunately, it does seem like an absence, a chilul Hashem. Okay, a second medrash, a few paragraphs later in Simon Hay, uh, focuses on the fact that the opening pasuk, as we previously read, is where Moshe is told to speak to Kol Adas B'nai Israel, to speak to the entire congregation of Israel, something which we don't find by most psukim or most mitzvos. And the medrash notes this, and in fact takes, not, takes note of this, and says that yes, that is coming to teach us, that this parsha Ne'emra Bahakel, was said in front of an exceptionally large group. I don't know if it means literally the entire Jewish people, or a much larger group than usual, but Moshe wasn't meant to just 
disseminate this teaching you know, through our own and then from our own to Zikanium and from Zikanium to other leaders and eventually have an efficient system of distribution of the message as the Gemara describes other parts of the Torah being taught to the Jewish people. But rather Moshe himself was to teach the entire Jewish people or at least some huge percentage of it all at once. And that is because, says the Medrash, Rov Gufei Torah Tluyen Ba, that if you go through the Parsha of Kedoshim, so many, in fact, the, Gemara, the Medrash suggests a majority, but at least many of the incredibly important principles of the Torah are included in this Parsha, including uh, sexual morality, keeping Shabbos, uh, the world of some world of Karbonos, and Kachim, gifts to the poor, uh, other interpersonal laws, etc., etc. Many, many foundational and important mitzvahs are mentioned uh, here. And in fact, in the continuation of the Medrash, Rabbi Levi says that in fact, you can find parallels to every one of the Asara Sedebros, all ten of the Ten Commandments, all the Asara Sedebros, you can find parallel mitzvahs to those ten in this week's Parsha. Again, highlighting the fact that this is a uniquely foundational Parsha with many, many fundamental mental principles. Last but not least is a third uh, Medrash here in Chavtalit Vav, in which the Medrash focuses on the fact that the end of Parshas Achimos dealt with illicit sexual relations, and now we have Kedusha, and that juxtaposition says the Medrash is coming to teach us, that sexual uh, morality is a key to holiness. Gemara in Yuma on Daf Pehei goes through numerous limudim, various attempts to source the fact that if someone is in danger for their life on Shabbos, if it's in a situation of pikuach nefesh, we're allowed to violate Shabbos. The final and preferred suggestion as a source for this dispensation is the pasuk in our parsha Perakit Ches pasuk Hey Shmartem Eschukosayv Es Mishpatai Esher Yase Osam Adam Chai we're supposed to observe the various mitzvos so that you shall live by them, the Torah says. We're supposed to live through the statutes and the commandments of the Torah and not die for them. This specific drasha in the Gemara and Yuma, on the one hand, is very compelling. On the other hand, it's reasonable to ask, why the Gemara needs this Pasuk to, perf- to form a special source, a special drasha for dispensing with the laws of Shabbos when a person's life is in danger, when this very drasha of Achai Behem is used in other sources, such as the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Ayin Dalid, for the general din of Ya'avor Va'al Yahareig. In other words, in most of the other mitzvos, other than the Cardinal Three, but for 610 mitzvos, the halacha is that if a person's life is in danger, we violate the mitzvah in order to preserve life. And the Gemara says that the source for that is v'chai behem. That's already a Gemara in Sanhedrin. So if that's the case, why do we need a special drasha and a different second Gemara to tell us that this is true about Shabbos? Shabbos is one of the 610 mitzvahs, and therefore, of course, it would have been included. A similar question can be asked on the Rambam. On the one hand, in Hilchos Yisodia Torah, in Parakei, he gives this drasha of v'chai behem, as the basis of the dispensation to allow yourself to live rather than die at the hand of observing any of the other 610 mitzvos. However, the Ramam yet again, a second time in Hilcha Shabbos, in Perik Beis, Halacha Gimel, repeats the idea specifically in the context of Shabbos. So therefore, once again, we have the same question, why the need for repetition? These questions form the basis of a fascinating 
and brilliant Sicha that was offered by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. In this Sicha, the Lubavitcher Rebbe first suggests that perhaps the reason for the two Gemaras and the two Rambams is because, in fact, there are two separate dinim. From a conceptual level, perhaps this operates in different ways. That for most mitzvos, there really is an obligation, but it's pushed off. It's a dechuya in a situation of threat to life. However, perhaps when it comes to Shabbos, it's hutra. That is to say, there was no obligation of Shabbos at all. Shabbos was never said. The obligations of Shabbos were never incurred in a situation of life-threatening illness, or other such threats. This fascinating possibility which he develops eventually is rejected by the Rebbe. After all, he says, if you look in that Rambam in Hilcha Shabbos, which we previously cited, where the Rambam says, V'chai Behem teaches us that you should violate Shabbos, the Rambam then continues and says, Halamadata, she'ein mishpateha Torah nekama ba'olam, ela chesed v'rachamim v'shalom ba'olam. The Rambam says, this is a basis. We see from the fact that you are allowed to violate Shabbos, that in general, for all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, the Mishpatei Torah, the purpose of the mitzvahs are not to make life difficult or harsh, but rather to add kindness and mercy and peace in the world. So it says the Rebbe, you see that the Rambam is connecting the dispensation in Shabbos with the dispensation in the rest of the Torah. If that's the case, we can't offer a theory which fundamentally uh, makes them divergent and separates them and shows how they're different when the Rambam himself is comparing them. And this leads the Rebbe to his second and final very brilliant explanation. And as he says, in fact, it's one unified din. But the ba- the reason it is repeated in Hilcha Shabbos is because the basis of everything is Shabbos. It starts from Shabbos, and then it expands to Kal Tarakula. And what is this? What is this new Chiddush? And that is, says the Rebbe, that we see in Hilcha Shabbos that when you violate Shabbos in order to save someone's life, that's actually not a violation of Shabbos. It's not Chil Shabbos, but rather it is a Kiyum in Shabbos. It's not that there's a dispensation to violate Shabbos. It's that the, the fulfillment, the observance of Shabbos itself demands that we preserve life. The basis of this tremendous Chiddush is the fact that the Gemara has another source, the Pasuk in Kisisa, the Shamru B'nei Yisrael Shabbos, which the Gemara says teaches us, Violate one Shabbos so that the person can actually live to, so to speak, fight another day, can live to observe many other Shabbosos. In other words, says the Rebbe, we see that this is not just a dispensation to allow you to violate Shabbos, but this is a kiyum in the larger goal of observing Shabbos. The action that you take to violate, to save someone's life, on a given Shabbos, that pula on a specific Shabbos may be an act of chilol. But for overall Shabbos, it is a kiyum in Shmiras Shabbos. That very pasuk there uh, in Shmos and Paraklam Adalaf and Kisisa, the very next pasuk, Yudayin, continues and says that Shabbos is Beni Uvein Bnei Yisrael Oshi. It is a sign, as Rashi there says, of the special relationship and love and chosenness of the Jewish people with Hashem. In other words, says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, part of the actual observance, the etzem kiyum of Shabbos, is that people are keeping it and therefore preserving the special relationship with Hashem. If there are no Jewish people, there is no special relationship. In order for Shabbos to serve as that testimony of the love and special relationship between the Jewish people and Hashem, there needs to be a Jewish people who are still around. And therefore, says the Rebbe, by saving someone's life on Shabbos, that itself is a kiyum, it's a fulfillment and perpetuation of that sign, of that ongoing relationship, and therefore it is a fulfillment of Shmir Shabbos itself. 
having developed this incredibly beautiful idea that violating Shabbos in order to save someone's life is actually not a violation at all, but a kiyum in Shabbos, because the Shabbos is about that long-term relationship, says the Rebbe, now we understand how this relates to the rest of the Torah. After all, the Rambam in Hilcha Shabbos himself then said, Halamadata, we see from here, Shein Mishpatei Torah, etc., etc. The Rambam is saying, what you see most intensively in Shabbos is true about all of the Torah. All of the Torah is about sustaining and projecting and beautifying the relationship between the Jewish people and Hashem. And therefore, ultimately, the life of the Jewish people, other than rare instances, always comes first. The Torah tells us in Perak Yutas, Pasuk Yudalid, lo We're not supposed to put a stumbling block before a blind person. And in addition to the literal and simple understanding of this Pasuk, not to in any way intentionally trip or cause to fall someone who can't see for him or herself, someone who's vulnerable because they are blind, Torah Shabal Peh, Chazal, add two additional layers of meaning. Number one, as Rashi quotes, is that there's such a thing as being a sumabadavar. In other words, you're ignorant about a certain matter, you're blind to the facts, and you ask someone else for advice, someone who you know to be knowledgeable and an expert in that area. If that person gives you advice, which is not entirely based on what he or she sincerely thinks is best for you, but in fact has some ulterior motive like what's best for him, then that is a violation of lifting the at lo siten because you are blind in the matter, you are ignorant, you're vulnerable, and you're depending on that person's knowledge and expertise. They have to do their best to give the best advice that they think for you. But if they have any other motivation, that is like putting a stumbling block before the person who is blind in the matter, the person who is ignorant. And third, and finally, the area which I want to focus on is the well-known idea which is quoted uh, by Chazal in a number of places, most notably in the first parak of Gemara Masechas Avodazara, that is that you're not supposed to be helping another person do an Avera. That is to say, as the Ramam explains, you can also be blind by lust, blinded by your desires. You have such a desire to transgress a particular Avera that's clouded your judgment, you're blinded by desire, but for whatever reason you can't transgress the Avera without the help of somebody else. So, for example, let's say you are a Nazir, you took a vow of abstinence from wine, and now you are just so desperate, you're blinded by your lust, your desire to drink, but you can't get to the wine. And someone else has access to wine, and you ask that person to give you wine. If they give it to you, you'll drink it. But if they don't give it to you, you can't violate. So, really, your ultimate transgression is dependent on whether that person helps or not. So, says the Gemara, in that scenario, it is prohibited to help someone else transgress, because by so doing so, you are, in essence, putting a michshol, a stumbling block, before that person who is blind, again, not literally blind, but blinded by their desire, helping someone in a critical manner transgress an avera, which they couldn't have transgressed on their own, without your help, is a violation of this prohibition of this iser d'oraisa, of lefne'ivra lo sitein michshol. There are a number of fascinating debates in Rishonim and Achronim around some of the details of this halacha, and I think if we study them carefully, we will see that underlying these debates is actually a very fundamental, conceptual argument of how to understand this fascinating halacha. So, for example, what is the halacha, what would be the case if, in situation, if somebody wanted to transgress one of the cardinal three of Eros for which a Jew has to give up his or her life? For example, let's say a person wanted to worship idols, but they didn't have access to the idol, and for whatever reason you did. 
and they asked you to give them the idol, or they wanted to buy the idol from you, and if you don't give it to them, they cannot transgress, they cannot worship the Avodah If you do help them, they can. So says the Baal HaMa'or, one of the great Rishonim from southern France, that if a person were to actually give or sell that idol to the person and they couldn't have gotten it without you, not only did you violate Lifnaiver, that's the easy part, but in fact, that is a capital offense. Just like Avodah Zarah itself, idolatry itself, to worship the idol is a capital offense. Yahareg v'al Yavor, you have to give up your life rather than transgressing, worshipping idols. So too, says the Balamor, a tremendous Chiddush, not only worshipping idols itself, but helping someone else worship idols is also, also a capital offense, also Yahareg v'al Yavor. And to this, a number of Rishonim, most notably the Ramban, say, what are you talking about? Yaharik Valyavor, a capital offense. That's something like Avodah Zarah itself. Helping a person worship Avodah Zarah, not a good thing. A violation, in fact, of Lifneiver. That's bad. But let's not exaggerate. You can't call that a capital offense. You can't say that's Yaharik Valyavor. You didn't worship Avodah Zarah, the other person did. All you did was help them get the idol. How are we to understand this fascinating debate? So many Achronim suggest that it's really dependent on this deeper more fundamental, conceptual question. How do we understand Lifneiver? If we understand Lifneiver as being a prat, a detail, a subcategory of the 612 other mitzvos, then perhaps we can understand the Bahamaor's seemingly radical position. That is to say, perhaps if you help a person sin, when we go up to the big uh, accounting ledger in the sky, if you will, when we are categorizing what exactly is your transgression, perhaps every time you help a person sin, it is categorized as part of the mitzvah or that avera itself, just to lower degree. So if you help a person violate Shabbos, that goes on your record as a Shabbos violation, not to the same degree as the person who actually violated, but still a Shabbos violation. And if you help a person violate Avodah Zarah, so that goes under your ledger, under your own uh, responsibility as a form of Avodah Zarah. Well, if it's a form of Avodah Zarah, because you helped another person do Avodah Zarah, then we could understand why the Balamor says that even you are a capital offense, and even you are violating a capital Avera, a capital sin, Yaharag Val Yavor. Alternatively, the Ramban apparently understands that that's not the case at all. Yaharag, that Lifnaivir is not some chameleon that changes with each sin. It's one umbrella general Klali Avera, whether you helped a person violate Shabbos, Kashrus, or idolatry, it doesn't matter. It's the same one umbrella of era called Lifneiver. And that's bad. It's an Avera. But it's not a capital offense. That's one possible debate which would hinge on this issue. A second one from the Achronim is a very fascinating discussion by the Yad Malachai, the Priyitzchak, and others. Let's say you give a cup of wine to the Nazir, or you give somebody something that they wanted to do the Avera with, and in the end they actually don't transgress. The Nazir never drank the wine. Obviously, they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't drink the wine. But did you violate anything by even giving them the wine? So some say, of course not. How could I be worse than the person who I gave it to? If they didn't sin, how could I sin? Makes a lot of sense. But how could others disagree? Some achronim say, because really it's an iser klali. It's this general avera. And the general avera is, don't help a person sin. Whether they ended up sinning or not, you did help them, and therefore maybe you transgressed.